Welcome back to Basecamp. As we are walking through one of the most important discussions that Christians all across Canada are processing through right now in light of the recent passing of Bill C-4, namely, is the historic Christian understanding of human sexuality and gender a position that leads to the flourishing of men and women? Or does the historic Christian understanding of sexuality and gender inhibit the flourishing of men and women in our culture today? I mean, that is the crux of this huge debate going on. And to tip our hand and show our cards a bit, as we talked about last week, we unquestionably, as Christians, believe that the Bible outlines that the best way, the very best way for us as humans collectively, not just Christians, but all people everywhere at all time and all places, the way that we can flourish in every possible way is to submit ourselves to God's word and to God's design, to God's word, the Bible, and to God's design for biblical manhood and womanhood and to embrace and celebrate the genders that God has given to us as he knit us together in our mother's womb and as we were born into this world. And so last week we began to talk about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And in this episode, we are picking back up on that discussion and spending this episode and the next one in processing through biblical masculinity. And then we're going to be spending two weeks talking about biblical femininity, so I'm excited to dive into these important discussions. So let's get started. So let me ask us to reflect on this question again. What does it mean to be a man? Now, when we look to pop culture, we might come to two different conclusions. Uh, On the one hand, men might be the lame, overweight, barely cognitive parent in a sitcom, right, who can't get anything right and needs his wife to handle all issues in their family and their marriage by her strong wit and personality. And, and, And yet on the other hand, if we are watching a truck commercial, we might see men as these macho cowboys with callous hands and a five o'clock shadow who work tirelessly on their ranches and are strong, capable men. And interestingly enough, these commercials will come in the middle of these sitcoms, and we think nothing of the disparity. (laughs) And yet, how also do we see this? So it's in the media. Maybe we've seen men in public leadership brag about promiscuity and flaunt their inflated egos. They're powerful enough men who can get away with whatever they want, even ethics violations, and remain in office. And and at the same time, we've probably heard about the stories of the 35-year-old dude spending his life eating ramen noodles and playing video games in his mama's basement, right? So so, so we've got Gaston from Beauty and the Beast on one side, and then we've got someone like George Costanza from Seinfeld on the other. So, so, So we've all probably got different ideas about defining what a man is and what he is to be all about. And, and we carry around these ideas of masculinity that, that really need to be reevaluated in light of Scripture. What does the Bible say? Right, so, so a few questions that we should consider uh, w- would be, uh, is there anything distinctive about manhood? That'd be a good question to, to think through. Is there anything distinctive about 
manhood in God's design that's meant for human flourishing. And, and even if there is something to being masculine, is it good? Is it good for human flourishing? Now, in this episode, we first begin these conversations acknowledging the brokenness and confusion that our culture at large, and, and many of us, have experienced on this topic. And so, so we must turn to the teachings of the scriptures in order to see what God says about true masculinity. So let's begin by turning again to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, and reviewing what we saw last week. Do you remember God's word says this? Said, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Right, so, so the Bible begins by stating that men and women are equally made in the image of God. They share equal value, worth, dignity, and importance. So there is no superiority and no inferiority in God's designs for manhood and womanhood. Yet while they possess an equality of essence, what we see in Genesis chapter 2, in our study there, we saw significant distinctions between the first man and the first woman, and, and the inclinations that they would have toward fulfilling God's creation mandate. Right? These inclinations were reinforced in Genesis chapter 3, as God outlined different consequences of sin for the woman and different consequences of sin for the man. And we stated that the distinctions between men and women and the roles they play in the home and in the church aren't the sinful result of the fall. No. And they're not obliterated in redemption, right? As we saw from Galatians chapter 3 and Ephesians 5 and, and a few other texts. So men and women are designed by God to complement each other with distinct dispositions and beautiful roles to play, different roles, right? According to God's good design. So from Genesis 1 and 2, we also saw that gender was given to us by God. It's his gift, Gender, therefore, is real and good, and it's defined by God. It's not defined by what we think or what we feel. No, no, no. It, it's real, good, and defined by God. Right? So being male is part of a person's essence. Being female is a part of a person's essence, and it's good. It's very good. Right? Being male is very good. Being female is very good. But this whole concept, these, these ideas, they, they fly just increasingly against the cultural winds all around us, right? Which say that gender is only some kind of a social construct, right? It's simply an idea or a perception of gender, right, that the world or society around us has defined with no necessary connection to our physical sex. But the Bible disagrees. See, gender is a construct, it's a divine one. It's from God. And thus it's beautiful and is a part of his wise plan. As we talked about as well last week, there are certain cultural expressions of maleness or femaleness, right? We talked about babies wearing either blue or pink, 
but that's just a cultural expression. But, but that doesn't mean, even though there are these cultural expressions of maleness and femaleness, that doesn't mean that gender is only cultural. That's why I'm using the term gender to refer both to our physical sex and to how we behave socially as men and women. Men and women share a common, common humanity, right? We are equal in value, but we're not, we're not identical. Let me say that again. That's important. Men and women share a common humanity. We are equal in value, but we are not identical, right? To be, to be clear, we shouldn't be surprised that our sinful fallen hearts may struggle to see and appreciate God's good design. We shouldn't be surprised. And it's certainly possible in a fallen world for some people to feel confused by or uncomfortable with their gender. Yes, absolutely. But such discomfort doesn't prove that gender itself is fluid. We'll have more on that in the upcoming weeks. What we'll see in our episode series on biblical manhood and womanhood is that the relationship between men and women isn't meant to be a parade with one in the front and one in the back. And it's not a race where the two try to elbow past each other. Rather, it's like a dance. The two genders in this dance have different steps or dispositions, and yet together they move as one in perfect harmony. They need each other, and their differences are part of the beauty of that dance. So in this episode, we want to ask, what is distinct about the male partner in this dance? We're going to talk about that today and and next week too. And because we want to be careful to stay within the bounds of Scripture on this important topic, let me give you four opening considerations as we begin this this episode series. So, number one, we should distinguish manhood from boyhood. We should distinguish manhood from boyhood. Now, biblically speaking, while it's fruitful to discern the differences between men and women, when it comes to how men should live, the emphasis isn't exactly so much be masculine instead of be feminine. No, the Bible basically assumes that. Rather, it puts more stress on be like a man instead of like a boy. All you have to do is open up to the book of Proverbs, right? It warns us as men against the folly of youthful thinking and boyish living, right? I mean, think about Proverbs 1, 4, or 7, 7, or 13, 20, or 22, 15, there are certain vices that, while common to all humanity, seem especially endemic to young men. And biblical masculinity is especially seen in young men growing to maturity. In fact, I even had a conversation with uh, one of my sons tonight as we were going to bed. Or as he was going to bed, I was tucking him in. And I was talking to him about how he's going to grow up one day to be a good and a strong man. And I talked to him about these traits that he has in his life in this moment. And talk about how they are the beginning traits of him growing up to be a good and a godly man. But I don't tell him as a boy that he is a man. Instead, I say him in his boyhood, he's learning how to be a man. So so we should rightly distinguish manhood from boyhood, right? So biblical masculinity is especially seen as young men grow to maturity. Secondly, to live as a godly man or woman Uh, On one level, simply we need to seek godliness, right? When it comes to our Christian discipleship, there's much overlap for men and women, right? We're both heirs in Christ, 
The New Testament only occasionally gives two uh, gender different instructions. Rather generically and, and generally, we're all told to take up our cross and follow Jesus. We're all told to make disciples who can make disciples. We're all told to train and equip those that are around us, right? So, so if you're listening and, and you want to grow as a Christian man or a Christian woman, you have the whole Bible at your disposal. Pray the Holy Spirit would grow the fruit of the Spirit in you, as we see in Galatians 5 that you would grow in virtues such as love and peace and kindness and self-control. And, and then thirdly, this, this episode series is, is focused on the very specific question of what tends to be distinctive about being a godly man in particular, especially in this episode. Yes, much of Christian discipleship is the same for men and women, but not all of it. So to my brothers out there, as a man... You'll always express the fruit of the Spirit as a man, not as a generic, genderless person. So our hope is to describe what are the family resemblances of dispositions that all men tend to have in common according to God's created design. And then fourthly, whenever we study God's creation design, we need to remember that creation is fallen, right? This means that some men will exhibit these tendencies more than others. Others may find these tendencies feel less natural to them. And the fall has made it difficult to perceive God's design sometimes. So, so the goal is simply this. Seek to live with the grain of the gender that God has made you to be. Now for some, that might be relatively straightforward. And for others, that might require seeking considerable wisdom for your personality, your context, and your culture. Looking like a man in one culture might look differently from looking like a man in a different culture. Right? So, so we're not necessarily just talking about cultural things or cultural dispositions or cultural traits. Rather, what we want to really focus in on is what does the Bible say to us about us as men and how we ought to live? And recognize at the same time that creation has fallen, so we might from time to time struggle naturally to be who God has created us to be, which is why we need his word. We need uh, also next to look at some foundations for biblical masculinity. So that's what we're going to do right now. So let's look again at Genesis chapter 2. And as we do so, we're going to focus on the account of creation and the fall in Genesis because it's so foundational for seeing God's original design for men and women. When, when we turn to the New Testament, Jesus and Paul quote and allude to Genesis chapters 1 to 3, showing that they saw these chapters continue to be both relevant and authoritative, and so, so do we. So first, let's look at Adam. Now, if we remember, Adam is given the name Adam because he comes from the ground. It's that word, Adama. So we know that Adam is, is here, and he's exercising dominion. So let's first talk about how he's, the scattering of verses that show his connection to the ground, and then we'll see how he exercises dominion over the creation that God has given him. So, Adam's connection to the ground. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plants of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Literally, there was no Adam, no man, to work the Adama, the ground, it, it's kind of as if the existence of the uncultivated ground calls out for someone to bring order out of chaos. In the same way that God himself does in Genesis chapter 1-2 with the earth when it was formless and void. So Genesis 2-7, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He forms Adam out of the dust 
from the Adama. And then Genesis 2.9, And out of the ground, the Adama, the Lord God made to spring up every tree. And then look with me at verse 15, chapter 2. The Lord took the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then verse 19, Out of the ground, the Adama, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So in this, we see Adam, who's made from the ground, exercising dominion over other species that were also made from the ground by naming them. There are echoes here of God exercising his dominion by naming parts of creation in Genesis chapter 1. Right? Recall that part of God's mandate for man and woman in Genesis 1 was to have dominion over all the animals. So it seems that the man, by virtue of being created first and being created from the ground, that he has a distinctive tendency to bring order and dominion to God's creation. So it's not that women don't exercise dominion, they do, but the man is doing it before the woman even comes onto the scene. And as we'll see in the future weeks, she isn't created from the ground, but she is created from the man. So just as he seems oriented distinctly to working the ground, she seems oriented distinctively towards the man. In other words, her special concern is the well-being of her husband, and by extension, her family, and by extension, then as well, the ground around. She is a partner helping create and cultivate the flourishing of the world around them. So then we'll fast forward, though, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 to 19, where we see that the ground, the Adama, is cursed because of Adam's sin. We read this. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So, so the fact that working the ground is uh, cursed suggests that working the ground is a key puzzle piece of masculinity, which, which leads us to a related point, another puzzle piece, working and keeping. Let's, let's look again at Genesis chapter 2.15. It says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden. For what purpose? to work it and to watch over it, or to work it and take care of it, or work it and keep it. And that word for work also means serve or labor or cultivate, right? That, that, that's man's role, both in the garden and after the fall as well. This is why God has created men, to work, to serve, to labor, to cultivate, so if you look at uh, chapter 3, verse 23, it says, The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. See, the point isn't the ground as much as it is working. Right? And as the Bible unfolds, we'll see that not all men are called to be farmers. <laughs> but rather, the point is that men seem wired to represent God's dominion through the work that God calls them to do. And for Adam, the garden was the world. It was the realm where Adam was to live out his God-given responsibilities. And if you want to talk about this a little bit more, we have a Christians in the Workplace uh, episode series as well that we did a little bit earlier this past year, and I would greatly encourage you to go back and listen to some of those episodes. 
But in this, what we're, what we're really thinking through is that men, as an implication of all this, is that we're called to work in whatever garden that God has given to us. Right? We're called to invest our time, our energy, and our ideas of bringing good things into being so that we can provide for ourselves and be generous with others. A good man gives his life to helping other things flourish. Is he, is he helping uh, the ground around him flourish? Is he helping his job flourish? Is his wife or the people in his uh, small group or Bible study, or is he helping them flourish? Is he helping his kids flourish in all possible ways? And this is the role of a man, to work and to keep, to protect and garb and to help things flourish. Right? A faithful man is one who has devoted himself to cultivating and building and growing, using his work, using his labors to make the world a more orderly place, right? And that's true, whether you're a waiter or an Uber driver, right? Whether you're a lawyer or a carpenter, and, and we cultivate not just jobs and tasks, but people, right? Think of Ephesians chapter five, husbands are called to nourish their wives, right? Or Ephesians six, fathers are called to raise children in the nurture of the Lord, right? So a man's fingers should be accustomed to working the soil of the human heart. Uh, Richard Phillips, he puts it really well. He says, this biblical mandate to work, here with the emphasis on cultivating and tending, explodes a great misconception regarding gender roles. But we have been taught that women are the main nurturers, while men are to be strong and silent. But the Bible calls men to be cultivators, and that includes a significant emphasis on tending the hearts of those given into our charge such as wife, children, fellow church members, friends, employees, colleague, colleagues, relatives, and the list could go on. And that quote from Richard Phillips, we're not saying that men are called to work and women aren't. Right? We're not saying that. We're just noticing that even in the fabric of how God created the first man and the first woman, the man seems to have a distinct inclination towards tending God's creation. And the other half of Adam's calling is found in that second verb, translated watch over, or take care of, or keep. And that word is used often of soldiers, shepherds, priests, and even God himself. See, this Hebrew word often implies protection. And when used of God, describes how the Lord guards his people to keep them safe. Thus, what we see is that a man is to both wield the plow of provision and bear the sword of protection. Let me say that again. That's, that's really good. A man is to both wield the plow of provision, is to work hard, take care of, help others flourish, and bear the sword of protection. You keep those people safe. Right? So, so as God's representative in the garden, Adam was not only to make it fruitful, but to keep it safe. And when Adam and Eve are expelled from Eden in chapter 3, verse 24, the Lord assigns an angel to guard, which is the same Hebrew word, the way to the tree of life, since Adam had failed at this job. So men are created, it seems, with an inclination to risk their well-being for the sake of others, to keep safe, preserve, stand up for, to watch over like a good shepherd. Man, isn't that good? And so I, I hope what you're seeing so far is the Bible's vision of manhood is distinct from the macho cliches in our culture, right? And even some Christian manhood manuals, right? 
Sadly, some Christian authors have taught that men need to get outside of the humdrum, boring, everyday life in order to find that they are truly wild at heart. But, but what we see in Genesis chapter 2-3 to three is that masculinity isn't primarily about big battles and adventures. It's primarily about tending whatever garden God has given us, providing for others' needs, and protecting them with sacrificial love. And brothers, you can do that whether you're a hunter or a kindergarten teacher. Whether you're building canoes with your bare hands in your free time or you're writing poetry. So let's turn next to what, what we're going to call a pattern of responsibility. Again, let's consider some of what we see in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. First, note that God formed the man first and then made the woman. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 13, Paul teaches that being made first signifies Adam's authority. He's alluding to this common notion in biblical teaching that being the firstborn implies authority. Right? Israel is called God's firstborn son, reflecting the nation's responsibility and authority to image God before the other nations. Jesus is referred to as the firstborn over all creation, not, not meaning that he was ever created. No, he's the uncreated one. But instead, it's referring to his position of authority, to speak on behalf of the Father. Second as well, note chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And then, Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, the man is the one who names his wife, calling her woman. Right, so, so she too is divinely created, in no way inferior, and yet distinct. Made by God to be a helper. We'll get into that in a couple of weeks. But, but what we want to notice right now is that his authority is subtly apparent, even in his naming her. But her value and significance is evident in the fact that, in verse 24, it's a man who leaves his parents and clings to his wife. She is the relational center of the family unit. Third, know what we learn about Adam's responsibility when temptation enters the picture. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was made more, or was, uh, more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Why did the serpent first come to Eve? Well, it wasn't because she was inferior or suffered from some inerrant moral weakness. No, that's just silly. No, he tempted Eve because it was a direct threat to Adam's authority. Satan aimed right at the very heart of what it meant for God to make Adam the leader of the marriage, the protector, the provider. And Eve his helper. So instead of man submitting himself to God, the woman accepting the man's leadership, both have authority and both having authority over creation, here we see that the woman listens to the creature and the man listens to the woman and neither of them listens to God. So Satan sought to deceive Eve because he knew in undermining Adam's leadership, he would undo the good that God intended for them. Fourth, look what happens in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, after they've sinned and hidden themselves from God. We read, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Interesting, isn't it? That the Lord God calls out the man first, even though it was the woman who first ate from the fruit. Why? You ever, you ever read that in thoughts? Why? 
Well, because Adam holds unique responsibility for their mutual well-being. He had abandoned his post as the leader in their marriage. So when God called Adam to account, he was reasserting the original created order. And then note as well the death sentence in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, for all humanity is directed at the man. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, it, it says, it's because of you, God says to Adam. Not you and your wife, but you, Adam, that creation is cursed. Adam functions as kind of as the head of all humanity, right? Eve will give an account, yes, but Adam bears the final responsibility because he represents the human race. And so Paul teaches in Romans 5 that because of Adam's sin, all of us are accounted as guilty. Interesting, isn't it? It's not because of Eve's sin, but because of Adam's. And again, not that Eve did not sin, but here we're, we're learning of Adam's, uh, Adam's functional uh, role as being the authoritative one leading and guiding and nurturing his family. This is his role. And, and all we're noting here is that God ordained that it is through the first man that our sinful nature comes. And then Romans 5 is Jesus, the second Adam, a man who brings our salvation. In other words, it seems that responsibility and even authority, right, while part of the image of God and men and women generally, are especially associated with manhood. We should expect men to be wired to feel a sense of responsibility for the well-being of others. Now, to be clear, just because Adam has a role of authority here doesn't mean that all men have authority over all women. No, that's definitely not true. We must remember that for Adam, uh, the Garden of Eden was a place of covenantal relationships, right? Adam and Eve were bound together in covenanted marriage. And we might also say they dwelled in God's place as God's people. So when we get to the New Testament, we'll see that the masculine disposition for responsibility is formalized into leadership in the most covenantal of relationships, marriage, and in God's people, the church. Right? So a husband is called to lead his wife and family while male pastors are called to exercise authority in the local church. That's where this pattern of general responsibility becomes most prescriptive, prescribes the things we must do. But at the same time, we shouldn't be surprised if men in other contexts and other spheres still sense a proclivity to feel a responsibility for the good of others, even if that sense of responsibility isn't formalized into a leadership role. Right, so, so single men in the church should feel a brotherly sense of responsibility to provide for and protect their dear sisters in the church and the other brothers in the church. That is a good and a godly thing. In the workplace, godly men uh, welcome a sense of responsibility to care for the needs of others, whether men or women, whether employees or bosses. And uh, next week, we'll, we'll look a little bit more at texts and find more puzzle pieces of biblical masculinity. But, but as we bring this episode to a close, I wanted to ask, what should we do if we've failed at this? Brothers, what should we do if we've failed at these things that we've talked about? What should men do if we've neglected or abused the callings that God has given to us? Well, some men here may need to repent of ways that we've been passive or lazy in the work that God has given us to do. Others may need to confess how we've failed to honor women or how we've wronged or objectified or abused women. 
how we've not cared about their flourishing at all and how sinful and terrible that is in light of God's command for us as men. And let me remind us that God knows all and he will deal justly with all men. Now, some women may ask where they can turn when the men in their life have let them down. Or maybe the men in their life have been monstrous. They've been a monstrous picture of masculinity. They have not been a biblical picture of masculinity. And let me, let me say that this is a real thing. There have been many women over the years who have talked to me about this, that they want their husbands to be this man who cares about their flourishing, who loves their babies and wants to care about all of their flourishing in every possible way. And let me just remind us as well, I mean, all of us, whatever our sin or shame, however we've been sinned against, we can all have hope today because we can all trust that there is a perfect man out there, Jesus. The first Adam served himself, and in doing so, he failed to provide and protect. And men will fail in these same ways. I fail in this all the time. There's no perfect man in our church. There's no perfect man ever. <laughs> There's one perfect man. The greater Adam, Jesus, who gave of himself to provide for and protect us. He gave his own life so that we might be provided and protected. See, the first Adam was cursed for eating from a tree. The greater Adam was cursed in our place by hanging on a tree. The first Adam's sin led to a curse on the ground. The greater Adam was buried in the ground and rose from death to undo the curse on creation and give us his resurrection life. Jesus is the faithful bridegroom who always loves, nurtures, and cares for his bride. And our hope is in him. And so, dear sister, if you're wondering when the men in your life have let you down or been a monstrous picture of masculinity, know that, that Jesus is the perfect man that you can trust. And you can pray for the men in your life that have let you down. You can pray for your husband. You can pray that he might grow in his understanding of his role to be a masculine man that God has called him to be, to care about your flourishing and the flourishing of your family as he's providing for you and protecting you. Pray for him. Pray for this dear brother that you call your husband. And if there have been other ways that you have been hurt in a monstrous picture of masculinity, realize that that is not the masculinity that God calls us to have as men. And maybe you might need counseling as well to walk through some of that. And if so, I know some phenomenal biblical counselors that would love to walk alongside of you to help process through some, some deeply uh, seated issues and heart problems and, and hurts and fears and anxieties and and that's part of living in this broken and fallen world. And, and one of the things that we're very saddened about, especially as a man, to know that there are men that are harming women and children in this world, it makes me very angry. It, it, it brings out that, uh, that I, I hope, uh, godly masculine uh, angst and desire to protect and to provide for dear sisters around me that I know are being harmed. 
which is a good and a godly thing. But but I also, as I mentioned a moment ago, am also not not a perfect man. And none of us are. So we need to firstly look to Jesus and then also get help and have others help us also look to Jesus. And so if you want a little bit more information on that, you can connect with me. I'd love to get you connected with a good biblical counselor. But that's all that we have for this this time today in our episode of uh, our first episode on uh, biblical masculinity. We'll be picking up next week and talking about that a little bit more um, on what we are called to do as men. And I pray that this episode has been helpful. Uh, if you found anything helpful uh, or uh, good uh, in it, uh, as we always say, uh, we the credit all goes to the wonderful folks at. Uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., as they've made kind of the bones and the structure of this episode series uh, able to be used by us as a ministry. Um, and we're really excited to be able to walk through a lot of these things as a church, both both in this platform and also uh, through some of our micro blogs. If you haven't seen that on Instagram or in our Signal group, uh, let us know. We'd love to uh, get you some of that information as we're trying to walk through these waters on what does it mean to be men and, and for those of you who are trying to raise future men, uh, I also put some books uh, in the uh, show notes uh, for today that I'd love for you to check out uh, and see um, how those might help you continue to know how you might parent uh, these godly boys uh, that we're praying would be godly men in the future. That's all we have for this week. I uh, hope this has been helpful and uh, looking forward to continuing these really helpful discussions. Until next time.